Welcome to the Keep Cool Show, the podcast in which we cover how cutting-edge climate technologies connect to the world in which we live. I'm your host, Nick Van Osdal. Water is the thing that you don't think about it until it's there, and then once it's there, it's very acute and very painful very quickly, because water can't be easily replaced. There's this interesting dynamic between water and energy where energy is arguably much harder to store, but it can be transferred long distances very quickly. Water is the opposite. Water is really easy to store. If you have a reservoir or an aquifer or collection systems at where you need the, the water, but it's very hard to transfer. All right, Alex, it's great to have you. Welcome to the Keep Cool Show. Nick, great to be here. Thank you for uh, the invitation. Yeah, thanks for making the time. So before we dive into water and all the cool tech specs that you're developing, let's start with a little bit of your background. How did you get into climate broadly and then maybe more specifically into what you're doing now? Sure. The first chapter uh, actually goes pretty far back. I was a river raft guide for about six years before college. Nice. So I used to teach whitewater stand-up paddleboarding, <laughs> kayaking, rafting, a whole bunch of other fun river sports on the Potomac River just outside of the Maryland, D.C. area. So a lot of my you know, really sort of touching, memorable moments when I think back to, to growing up were out on a river and some of those experiences being in the environment, really getting to share that with uh, you know campers and, and friends alike. So when I went to college, I knew that there was going to be an environmental bent to whatever I ended up studying. Went into environmental engineering, excited about technology, finding cool, innovative ways to do something more with the resources that we have. Ended up also falling in love with entrepreneurship while I was at Tufts. Ended up being the sort of chair of the undergrad group focused on helping promote student startups, getting them in touch with mentors and business model competitions. And then those two universes collided when I started a master's program at Tufts, which was a master's in innovation and management, which was sort of Tufts version of spend three semesters and try and start a business if you can. Take an idea, whatever that idea is, and build the business plan around it. Find who would be your potential customers, build the financial strategy, build the marketing strategy. And I had the foresight to know I was not going to invent anything of merit. So I ended up collaborating with the university and the tech transfer office at Tufts, where all of the exciting work that researchers are putting out and publishing and developing new inventions that they patented. And I found this class of new materials, new filtration tools that had come out of Dr. Aisha Asatakin's lab mm. in the chemical engineering department that had this breakthrough performance for water filtration, for water treatment. And just it was too close to what I, I knew I, I wanted to do. And I was really excited to work with her. And so that became the basis for a lot of the work I did in my master's program. Ended up either serendipitously not finding another job or something else to do after college. <laughs> so here I had this project. I figured I might as well jump off the cliff and see how far I could take it. Nice. And so what was that? Take me through that process a little bit. What was that like when you were looking at different technologies at Tufts that you could potentially build off of and commercialize? Kind of, did you have a hunch that it would be something related to water, or were you much more open-minded just coming into that process? I did have a, you know, energy waste management, water. You know, I knew it had to be within clean tech to really spark the, the spirit of what I wanted to spend my time on. Water obviously was a high priority, and I actually had known the inventor. I known Dr. Asatakin ahead of time, so we had a prior relationship. And knowing that it was her work, and I had no idea how closely aligned her work had been to my personal passions, that definitely was what sort of 
tip me over the edge to reach out to her first. So, you know, a couple of days later, I was knocking on her door, uh, her office, saying, Aisha, you know, is there any way that you could, you know, support me in trying to further commercialize this research? And her reaction was, oh my God, Alex, I've been, you know, hoping someone would <laughs> come knocking on my door this whole time because I knew that I wasn't going to start a company or, or take it further than what the academic route would require. But she really wanted to see the technology go further because she was excited about the performance she'd seen. So it was a really nice meeting of, of interests and passions there. And so it was a pretty clear fit from that point on. Awesome. So fast forward a little bit, you know, you and I have chatted, but folks listening in probably don't know that much about what you're doing at Twitterco. What's the 60 to 90 seconds on it? And then we can go a bit deeper on, on the tech and the history of the industry and all that good stuff. Absolutely. So Twitterco, based on this technology, builds breakthrough filtration tools that help industry and agriculture treat and reuse their water. What we see in the industry right now are the industries that are responsible for our food, our fuel, our manufactured goods and services, our waste management. A lot of them are facing a lot of pressure right now on their future growth, their resilience in the face of climate change based on their access or their relationship to water. We are finding companies that cannot get water into their facilities. They're either drawing their groundwater wells dry or their municipalities restricting access. We find companies that are under capacity in their wastewater treatments and just no longer can continue processing the volumes they need to because they can't manage the water effectively. Or they are paying obscene costs, often unexpected costs based on how the price tag of buying water and discharging through municipal sewer circuits has changed over the last few decades. Mm -hmm. And so water has become this key constraint in the growth of these critical industries. And from our standpoint, technology should be able to solve this to help not only provide the technical mechanisms to get that water to a quality where it can be reused, but to do so affordably and practically and mm -hmm. reliably. And a lot of these industries haven't had those tools before. And so when we think about the opportunity in front of us, this sort of massive global challenge of, of water reuse, when you have industries that are taken off the water grid or as much as possible reduce their freshwater consumption, mm -hmm. you get a twofold sustainable benefit. You have less competition for that scarce resource. So that as we're thinking, policymakers and municipalities are trying to govern how we've got one source of water, how are we going to distribute it amongst all the different people who need it? Those industries can have their own independent, reliable supply of what they need, which limits that competition. And then on the flip side, guarantees for them the resiliency they need to know in 5, 10, 20 years from now, I'm still going to have that water because I've got a practice or a program that lets me treat and reuse it so that my future isn't subject to all of these risks and uncertainties that I think are really starting to reach public attention of a big problem for all these critical industries. Right. Yeah. I think it's definitely like an appreciable problem for folks these days. You know, you see headlines about drought on the West Coast of the United States. If you live there, I mean, globally, we've been talking about this issue for the last couple decades, it feels like. I guess a little more color, perhaps, if you would on the kind of how did we get here? You know, like if industry was set up in a way where it seems like, you know, maybe 50, 60 years ago, they were expecting to have access to fresh water pretty cheaply for a long time. Or at least I imagine that might be the case, given they didn't build sophisticated water reuse systems, knowing that it's, I'm sure it's a confluence of a ton of different factors and climate change is a big one of them. Like, what are some of the reasons that, you know, this is a problem now and it wasn't maybe like midway through the last century? So I think it starts with a little bit of human nature. How many of us 
really pay attention to the volume of water that is going down the drain when we turn on our sink or that we're in the shower. I mean, there's been more recent attention on measuring it, considering these kinds of behaviors, but water has for so long been this vast resource that we didn't expect could run out or that isn't easily measured or quantified. And so we've had these water rights or allocation programs that have been in place for decades that didn't have a constant feedback mechanism to actually be quantifying the effects that were changing so that you could start having more advanced notice about how these issues were going to show up. So part of it is we just haven't been thinking about it. We haven't been focusing on that as a place where we need to be investing in measurement tools and systems to collect and monitor and analyze that data. Mm. And then the other side of it is it's accelerating. It's happening a lot faster. It's happening faster yeah. than models could have predicted. Yeah. You know, it's one of the lines that I've been hearing from our sort of stakeholder bases. We hear a lot about climate change as this global problem with many facets. Water is the shark's teeth. Water is the thing that you don't think about it until it's there. And then once it's there, it's very acute and very painful very quickly because water can't be easily replaced. There's this interesting dynamic between water and energy where energy is you know, arguably much harder to store, but it can be transferred long distances very quickly. Water is the opposite. Water is really easy to store. If you have a reservoir or an aquifer or collection systems at where you need the, the water, but it's very hard to transfer. Yeah. It's not easy yeah. to build pipeline <laughs> or to build trucking infrastructure that's going to get you large volumes of water to new places. So the impetus is on us to better manage locally, regionally, what's there and what the needs are, and to be more attentive to the speed with which changes in global climate conditions, changes in drought and water availability could get really scary really fast. I mean, I remember when a couple of years ago, and that was, no one was thinking about it, no one was talking about it, until all of a sudden it was the only thing that people were paying attention to. It was the first time we'd seen an instance so acute of how it was going to affect a large volume of people. And so we're now seeing more in those instances popping up in different regions throughout the world. You're hearing stats by 2050, half of the world is going to be under water stress. States throughout the United States, at least, are really thinking about different programs to govern water access. So the atmosphere has changed really quickly on this. Yeah, a number of things you said there resonate for me. I think for one, this idea that anytime something's a little bit out of sight, out of mind, there's a risk that you'll run into some challenges around it down the road. And I mean, societies in the last 100 years, we've kind of set it up in a way where intentionally some of the stuff is removed from, you know, what people would encounter on the day to day, like you don't see the water sanitation plant that serves your city, you don't see where your food comes from, per se, like a lot of the stuff has just been abstracted a bit more, and it becomes hard to appreciate all that goes into making our day to day life tick. That's absolutely right. And again, by design, people don't want to go see wastewater treatment plants, although any listeners here, I really encourage you to. They're awesome. They're incredible feats of civil and environmental engineering. But we've intentionally removed them from the public eye. But with many things around encouraging better resource management, I think a lot of people are talking about how do we get closer to it? Our soil health, our energy consumption, our water usage, our waste. The out of sight, out of mind is a piece of the human condition. And as we think about being more conscientious of our footprints, we've got to pay attention to it a little bit better. Right. So let's talk about how you all are helping. Maybe we'll start with a little bit on the technology. I reckon it could be slightly over my head, but uh, yeah, we'll do our best and then we'll go from there. Sure. Verco builds membrane tools, filtration devices that allow for the extraction of 
compounds that would otherwise make it difficult to reuse that water. A lot of industrial facilities produce wastewater that has fat, oil, grease, protein, salts, heavy metals, compounds that affect the purity of the water and you don't necessarily want those impurities getting fed back into your plants. You have to think about ways to remove them efficiently. In the world of membranes, we see a lot of membrane adoption in places like seawater desalination, in municipal water treatment, and surface water treatment. And part of this is because those membranes that have these very precise separation mechanisms, right? Membranes are, think of like a coffee filter. It removes things based on the pore size and things that are too large can't fit in, things that are small enough can pass through. So where membranes are deployed are environments where you're not going to see a lot of clogging, a lot of wear and tear on the membrane just through its natural course of operation. Got it. But when you take membranes and you put them into these industrial fluids or industrial environments, the rate of fouling or the rate that these compounds you're trying to take out can clog and ruin the membranes can happen much more quickly and can be much more difficult to manage. So you don't see nearly as much membrane use in these hard-to-treat waste streams. So Whitterco's membranes are built from this new class of material. We have a class of chemistries referred to as Zwitterionic copolymers that end up having this property where they don't foul, they don't clog, or they don't have material stick to them in the same way. Mm-hmm. And it's not just that this is a surface property. The way we've engineered the pore structure of these membranes, and membranes are a sort of a three-dimensional matrix, and so it's not just the mm-hmm. surface that you have to worry about. Our membranes have this fouling-resistant property as a feature of their pores. So nothing gets stuck inside the membrane. They're very easy to clean. And because you can clean them, store them, continue using them, it really changes the economic equation for doing membrane-based filtration or organic concentration in fluids where membranes have historically never been possible. You sort of take a off-the-shelf conventional polymeric membrane, and you'll see things like less than one part per million oil and grease in your water, or you might void the water tear. Our membranes regularly take 100,000 parts per million oil and grease, and we can still clean and recover them. We are regularly putting them in environments that sort of average filtration expert would scratch their head and go, that shouldn't be possible. (laughs) But the performance we see is membranes can now be used for these separations. And so Mm. we think about how that affects water treatment. There's new tools in the tool belt. It also means that we can create new products out of those waste streams because a membrane that retains fat and oil and concentrates it might now give you a direction for turning that into a feedstock or a fertilizer or a biodiesel additive or a new compound that gets put into pet food. There is value to what is in this water if you can isolate it effectively. And membranes happen to be a really good tool for both of those two jobs. Concentrate the stuff that you now want to repackage as a new saleable product and get it out of the water so you can reuse that water more efficiently. One quick question, you know, for some of these folks where membranes weren't traditionally effective for the types of wastes that they're dealing with, what have they used in the past, those types of customers? Like, is it kind of a combination of other solutions? It can be a combination of other solutions. And when we think about, especially companies that rely on using municipal treatment infrastructure as the final destination for their water, a lot of the treatment happens at the centralized treatment plant. So a lot of what folks have been regulated on and what they have been expected to do as pre-treatment before it goes down the drain is based on some amount of contaminant reduction, some amount of of treatment, so you're not going to put too much burden on the the centralized treatment facility. But rarely have there been complete combinations of tools 
applied so that you can reuse it on site. Sort of like do enough that you can put it down the drain and not pay too high of surcharges or be at risk of violation. But the mandate has not been treated to the quality where it's now pure enough for reuse on site. So part of this is a shift towards rarely has that been the practice or the expectation. And as you try to get to those finer and finer qualities of treatment, um, you need more advanced technology. So there's this push now to part of it's because the tools haven't been there and part of it is because the mandate hasn't existed. But both of those two things are now changing. Right. When you don't have folks that are able to discharge down the drain, either because they aren't connected to that kind of infrastructure or their waste is just way too strong and way too challenging. The municipality has said, no, thank you. Please find something else to do with it. You have limited options. So you can try to apply for environmental discharge permits, discharging it to surface water, to rivers. You can try to perform land application, spreading it on soils and letting the natural process of you know, absorption into the soils help process and purify that waste. Oftentimes you're hauling it away. You're loading it up onto a five or 7,000 gallon tanker truck and you're driving it to the local anaerobic digester, landfill, yeah. some sort of Sounds expensive. <laughs> and that's painful. Water yeah. by truck is not a good economic equation. So these industries that haven't had the opportunity to deploy advanced membranes, advanced biological treatment, advanced you know, fiscal chemical adjustment are still in these, what I might call archaic practices where they're just trying to get rid of their waste in whatever way they can. And over time, it has incurred this larger and larger operating cost penalty that it's sort of like, you know, frog boiling in water. It is a cost of doing business because we didn't realize there were new methods and new tools. But when we come in and talk about, you can save this much on your water, you can save this much on your hauling, you can save this much on your surcharge to produce chemicals this much. It is not hard to get to a financial equation that says doing this thing that feels more sustainable is now also the financially attractive option. Yeah, I can see why you know, a more circular solution for the water starts to make a ton of sense if you have to pay to haul it somewhere else and then you have to pay for new water that you're not, you know, replacing from the old water. Yeah, I mean, a lot of things start to start to make sense financially there. Maybe let's talk through a couple case studies of where, you know, the technology is already being deployed so that people get a sense of like, what are these manufacturing facilities and clients look like? You know, what kind of waste are they dealing with and what are some of the benefits that they're already reaping? Yeah, absolutely. So one of the plants that we've had now running for a while is a dairy wastewater treatment facility. So think about how we get our dairy products, everything from our whey protein, our milk, our cheese, our cultured products. Well, when you've got to wash down all of that equipment, you've got all of the waste material or skimmings that might go down the drain, you can end up with hundreds of thousands of gallons a day of wastewater. Um, in this case, <laughs> the facility was in a very urban setting and was unable to access for their high strength wastewater using the municipal treatment circuit. So they were truly hauling 100,000 gallons a day. Wow. Painful. So we are now using a multi-step filtration process, Sudarco's membranes as the organic removal tool, and then mm. reverse osmosis to get it down to that really fine purity, remove all of the dissolved solids, and get it to the point where it can be effectively as clean as freshwater input. And they're now reusing something like 80 to 90% of that water and concentrating you know, one-fifth or one-tenth of the volume. So you get all of that operating savings from just needing that much less trucking volume or trucking fleet to, to take that remaining waste away. Um, we have a facility in the bioprocessing space. So in the whole world of biomanufacturing, we're now using genetically modified yeast and E. coli cells to produce or express all sorts of really creative compounds, things like all proteins, green chemicals, new building materials, all built through these microbial factories. Mm -hmm. But 
those factories need a lot of water because a lot of this is grown in fluid reactors and they produce a lot of wastewater from all the spent nutrients and spent broth. So we have one company that is actually one of the key inputs into green proteins or alt proteins, right? Think impossible yeah. foods, green on meat. And there is a need for more water into that facility, but it's in a region where they cannot get more water to their plant. They don't have access just due to constraints regionally. So they're dumping all this water down the drain. They need more water so they can expand the production. And in this case, we're going to use both, again, here, disorder cause membranes and reverse osmosis to get them basically 80% water reuse, which is going to allow them to 5x their production. Fantastic. So they were blocked from being able to grow in the way that this is an exciting industry. It's a sustainable industry, but water was the constraint. So getting more water back or reducing the water intensity of the process means they can grow that much faster. And maybe a third example, we have a meat and poultry facility in the Midwest where they've been on groundwater wells for a really long time. And they have suddenly started to get noticed that their groundwater wells are drying up. Yeah. And they are big plant. It's doing about 2 MGD of water or wastewater produced. And they're trying to basically find some mechanism for if they can't get more water out of their wells, or they certainly don't want to start trucking water into the facility, can they start reusing it at different point sources? Can they lessen the burden on their existing wastewater treatment infrastructure? And so we've been working with them for a while now on understanding different locations in their process so they could immediately start reusing water so that, again, we think about meat and poultry in such a critical component of the food supply. There is a decent amount of pressure right now from some EPA lawsuits and just general water burden that something like 10% of all protein production facilities in the United States are at risk for being shut down just from some of these challenges around how they're managing water. So finding these tools could be yeah. critical for keeping them in business where they are. could also be a big problem if suddenly the price of meat changes dramatically overnight because the supply is that quickly constrained. That's interesting. I mean, we've talked so much about, not you and I specifically, but society as a whole about inflation this year. And like, you know, you don't often talk about, you talk about like energy inflation and food inflation. You don't necessarily talk about water inflation, but like it is one of the main things kind of like underlying all those other price factors, right? So it's a lot of sense. And I really do want to give a call out to you know, all of these customers that I've referred to, as well as many of the folks that we are working with, new engineering partners, new end users, Rarely, if ever, do I meet individuals in this space who aren't incredibly excited to try and push sustainability as a mandate, as a mission for their facility, for their company. No one has to be convinced that they should want to reuse their water. In fact, many of them find us because they're already several steps down the path and just trying to figure out what's possible. Right. When I started the company, part of the advice that I got from many of the advisors who had been involved in earlier stages of clean tech innovation trying to grow in the early 2000s, the reaction was always never open with your sustainability story. No one wants to hear about it, right? <laughs> ESG is nice, but talk dollars, right? Don't sure. position yourself that way. And while it's true, it has to make financial sense. There's always going to yeah. be a cost equation to it. Yeah. People want to talk sustainability. People want to meet their water waste reduction goals. People are really evangelistic about new tools, trying new things because they, they sense the pressure. They want to be on the right side of you know, pioneering sustainability in their industry. I've been really delighted and really proud to work with who we've had a chance to meet because they care as much about these problems as we do. I hadn't thought of that angle, but you know, a lot of, I think if you venture into something like energy, right, like 
solar and wind, you and I, you know, probably have similar opinions about it, but you can find folks that have like very fundamentally different opinions and beliefs about capacity markets versus, you know, fossil fuels and stuff like that. But that's interesting that, yeah, water does strike me as something that it's certainly much more bipartisan where like, you're not going to find anyone that isn't excited about like, you know, let's make sure we still have water to operate our heavy manufacturing and like take a shower in 10 years. That seems like it's a pretty easy thing for everyone to get on board with. And, and I hope it stays that way, right? Yeah. Um, certainly there's going to be a lot of regulatory, both headwinds and tailwinds around this space. And, and it's, it will enter into the geopolitical sphere as something that different administrations and different political parties see differently around to make improvements. But I think we can all appreciate the improvements need to happen. I mean, it's going to affect too many industries and too many households. And people are starting to see it in their day to day. I mean, water is no longer like a far away. It's only happening in those countries over there that don't have developed infrastructure. It's been a headline in the United States news circuit for months, just from all the effects that have happened this year. So it will be something that people feel and see and touch. And hopefully that means we can not waste time thinking about some of the political ramifications and can really focus on strategies to get it addressed. And back to the case studies briefly, I mean, can certainly appreciate 80 to 90% reuse rates. Like that's tremendous when you're going from zero to 80 or 90. And it's also cool. Like I was just thinking like earlier in 2022, covered another company, Epic Clean Tech, that's building water reuse systems for buildings. So it's cool to you know, see folks that like yourself that are starting to do this in industry and manufacturing and people that are trying to build solutions for commercial buildings. It's like ideally, you know, there's so many different all parts of society use water. So building different systems to make sure that water reuse rates increase significantly across all those different, this is exciting. I am so glad that you mentioned Epic. I will shamelessly shout out Aaron Krakowski, <laughs> the CEO of Epic Tech. Aaron was uh, one of the winners of the Tufts 100K business model competition for Epic the year before Twitterco was. And oh, wow. he was quite literally one of the inspirations that I had for joining this space was seeing the work that he was doing and, and how exciting it was to think about building a company in water. So I don't know if Aaron's going to hear this one, but appreciate the We'll let him know. Yeah. There's something water. in the water at Tufts. That's right. It's like all the good water companies are coming out of there. On the case study still, though, I did want to get back to the like kind of like the pollutants to products angle too. Are some of the, you know, the waste that's being filtered out of water at some of these sites, like are some of those customers and companies reusing materials or turning that into valorizing that way? Yeah, it's always a, an interesting equation that, that doesn't have a perfect predefined roadmap right now. Right. Valorization schemes, the off-tank arrangements, the demand centers, all of this is coming alive around us right now, but it's definitely very new. And so we're going to learn a lot more about programs that make this more efficient and more accessible to you know everyone who has these waste streams, not just the ones who are most forward-thinking and contemplating what's possible. But where we have seen it, Sometimes it is a company that has an existing offtake arrangement for some of their waste. You can just add this to the pile, right? So almost every meat and poultry facility has a relationship with a rendering company that takes the blood and the feathers and some of the other parts and uses that as a necessary input to cosmetics and pet food and other ingredients that people might not know about, but it's an important part of the total sustainable supply chain. When you have those relationships in place and suddenly we can just add a bit more fat, protein, and oil that shows up in the wastewater, there doesn't need to be anything new constructed. It's just part of an existing offtake arrangement, which is a really helpful way to drop into that existing network. In the bioprocessing space, 
it's definitely a bit more unique what we're contemplating. There's been a lot of discussion in the synthetic biology community. There's been so much venture investment. There's been so many high profile startups that raised a lot of money. And there's a lot of growth in what's possible. And one of the big challenges that we keep hearing about, yes, we need more water and better water management in these facilities. Yes, we need to better manage the downstream processing, the tools we use to refine these high value products so that we get better yields, better efficiency, and help make the eventual products more cost competitive in the marketplace. But one of the right. other places that's really shown up is media recycle. It's a big cost is all of the nutrients and growth additives and you know, what makes up the solution where the biological process is occurring. And a lot of times that is all spent and all wasted. And there's been a big discussion around, could we get out all of the nutrients that haven't been consumed and use that for my next batch of media? That's mm. a tough challenge. There's inhibiting agents that grow, the ratios change. It's not so easy to just take the leftover soup and make <laughs> broth out of it. So part of what Zwitterco is looking at is a partial step. Rather than using that waste as new inputs to a new process, we're just converting it into a different form of a revenue stream. So we're concentrating the cellular debris, the protein, the nutrients through membranes first, eventually through a thermal and drying process into a dry cake. And the goal is sell that as a high protein feedstock or you know, something to aquaculture, to pigs, to other feed, potentially just as a compost additive or soil amendment. It's building sort of this multi-year, multi-horizon path to getting more and more value out of it. Sometimes it's better to do it externally. In some opportunities, you can do it with that same facility. Yeah. In the manure space, there is much more precedent for using the nutrients, the nitrogen, the phosphorus that is in the waste manure or in the waste digestate, using that as fertilizer for the surrounding fields. Yeah. So in that case, there's an easier path to, you know, farmers typically find ways to get value out of their manure where they can. The process that we're taking is concentrating all those nutrients into something that's easily stored and packaged so that rather than just land spreading and it's basically the same application of nutrients year-round when the soils need it and when the soils don't need it, you're better able to apply it specifically when it's used for supporting the growing season and not have all the waste nutrients that can just be you know, run off and lead to eutrophication during all the times that it's not as effective. So it really does change sort of site by site. Well, that's interesting. So you're considering, you know, actually taking ownership, so to speak, of in some cases, some of the products that the membrane's filtering out and trying to produce a new product out of. That sounds like a pretty meaningful expansion, if I'm understanding it correctly. The ownership gets really interesting. And again, this is pretty site by site. I will say, Zwitterco focuses right now, our core business is building these filtration tools. Right. And we sell with and through systems integrators, the engineering companies that design and deliver full-scale turnkey treatment solutions. In some of those applications, it makes sense for the treatment provider to model all of this as a water as a service or a nutrient recovery as a service style business where if someone doesn't want to broker the offtake arrangements, someone doesn't want to think about the path to valorization, you might just say, sell your water to me and I'll deal with it from there. You know, sell me your wastewater and I will sell you back clean water. And it's the engineering company that figures out how to broker those relationships. In other cases, the end user themselves is really motivated to capture the value of that potential valorized stream. So where the ownership shakes out is always sort of an important conversation, but the net benefit is more value is created. There's more value available in the total pie, which means the conversation about, I'm gonna have to spend 
how much in new capital infrastructure to put in things <laughs> that, you know, maybe I can just continue disposing of. But if you can talk about it in terms of long-term IRR based on both the operating savings and potentially the revenue streams, there's just more on the table to work with. And how it gets divided up is something that you know, three parties may, may have a different structure for in different cases. It's interesting. I mean, it sounds like you've had to be, and to your benefit, have been very nimble in terms of how you structure things with different sites and different clients. I'm sure you kind of came in thinking like, we're going to you know, sell these membranes to folks and we're going to do it over and over again and it's going to be great. I guess, talk to me about how, you know, from your perspective as a founder, how you navigated that over the years of like starting with an initial hypothesis of like, this is how we're going to make money to expanding to at least, you know, consider some of these other potential revenue streams. Sure. And this is sort of the entrepreneur's journey. You're always thinking about <laughs> where do I have the unfair advantage? Where does the value of this performance really have the most impact and sort of the most dire need? And for us, we saw that as these spaces where membranes have never been possible before. Mm. That's exciting from a expanding the market for membranes, sort of a little bit of blue ocean territory, because you're going up against trucks, you're going up against sewers, right? You're not competing with other membranes, you're competing with these other classes of technologies or other practices. The challenge, of course, is that means these are people that don't have existing membrane systems. You can just replace their filters with your filters. They don't necessarily have the staff or the engineering know-how to think about integrating a large wastewater treatment solution. That's not their business. They make whatever they make for their core product. So the route to market, the way we navigate some of these challenges was we knew that there were a large cohort of wastewater producers that really wanted new solutions, one change. We knew there have been a existing set of stakeholders in the value chain that are focused on integrating new technologies and finding ways mm -hmm. to package them in the most efficient ways to help meet the needs of the end users. And many of those companies have membrane expertise. They build membranes, they just build them in other spaces. So getting to find that ideal partner for us that has innovation as part of their DNA, they aren't scared of new technology, but they have some of that other competency and scope around designing and delivering equipment, building membrane systems or building complementary units, and then knowing how to deliver those projects was a really nice hand in glove fit for us because we could help open their eyes about what was now possible. If you use these membranes, they could organize a lot of the other resources to deliver a full solution. And then the end user would get from you know an expert engineering company, everything they need to manage their water. And they don't suddenly have to become water experts themselves. Yeah. But sort of knowing how the value chain already existed, knowing that we needed to be going after the spaces where we can have the most amount of impact and could really change what's possible. And that would be the best value created from our products. And then just finding the right early adopters who were excited by what this could be. They had strategic growth in mind, you know, really wanted to pioneer new opportunities for their customers. And there has been a really good meeting minds there when you have all those pieces on up. No, I like that framework and especially kind of the perspective on the competition not being like what membranes can we replace because we're incrementally better but you know where can we replace the drain as it were or a truck or something else that makes a lot of sense and it you know speaks to the opportunity to just like expand the market significantly like you know you don't necessarily have to take market share away from another water reuse system there's a massive opportunity to just 100x the amount of water that we reuse across society and that's i mean i i'm sure you could find lots of um 
articles that are framing what the growth rates in water are. It's a big market, but it's getting a lot bigger. The vast majority of wastewater isn't reused today. Mm. So knowing that's a place where the world needs to go means that market has a pretty enduring growth potential to it. And so being able to drive that change by being in that sort of lead position on the wave for a space that is under so much pressure to change and has had so much lack of a lack of development over the you know, however many decades. It's a good when you think about timing as a abstract concept in, in venture development, I think right now is a really good time to be in the space of innovating in water because the needs are being known, but it's not like there have been decades of innovation changing what's been possible and people are you know, they're just it's all sort of coming together right now where the cost of technology is coming down, new technologies are being offered, the needs are becoming really acute, everyone's excited about it, but this is a really fertile space for, for a lot of growth. And I think the investment community is seeing it that way as well. And jumping off of that, you know, where do you want to be in five years in terms of, you know, capacity of, of water that you're helping folks reuse and perhaps compare it to the volumes that you're you're doing today already? Sure. You know, with what is installed and what has been ordered and is expected to be installed shortly, um, the company will be processing a couple million gallons a day of wow. wastewater across you know, a dozen different facilities. You know, let's boost those numbers up. You know, there's time to waste on uh, you know slowly, incrementally growing. We we want to get up to hundreds of millions of gallons a day treated because there are billions of gallons a day of treatment capacity that is out there and that is needed. Got it. So it is still a business that requires hardware to be installed, lengthy evaluation cycles to be contemplated. There's a lot of risk averse you know, tendency in the water space. So it is a space that is going to grow in probably not a dissimilar way to many of the other clean tech industries that have had to go through the challenges of, of bringing new hardware and new material innovations to otherwise stickier, challenging marketplaces. But the speed with which people find us at this point or the volumes that we see these plants and facilities need means you do not need to have taken over the whole global space to get up to 100 million uh, gallons a day of of treatment. You need a couple anchor partners and a couple of these multi-site end users. And starting with these folks that, that are on the cutting edge can get you there and put us in a position to continue to expand the tools that we can offer, the global relationships that we have, even at 100 or 200 MGD, million gallon a day. There is still, I mean, that's a drop in the bucket for what's left. Yeah, I'm sure one really large client even starting to integrate you across some of their sites. Like, I don't know, I'm just thinking about like Tyson Foods. <laughs> I'm sure they, you know, they have that 100 million gallon day potential just across like some of their sites in the Southwest or Southeast or something like that. Yeah, absolutely. And that's part of the strategy as well is, you know, in particular, you'll find companies that are publicly tracking their water and waste reduction goals. They want to reduce water consumption year over year by this percent, or by 2025, get to this much reduction across their facilities. Um, name, name your favorite Fortune 500 company. They probably have something about water management as part of their corporate sustainability goals. So, so you're absolutely right. There's a you know, almost wildcatting approach to finding lots of different sites, you know, boots on the ground. There's a partner-led approach that has folks that already have relationships leveraging those channels. And there's finding the corporate leaders that have so much capacity and so much demand. And that if you really build strong relationships with them, there's mm. an opportunity to maximize that distribution. So sort of working on a couple different fronts. I think we touched on it earlier, but what are some of the things that you're tracking 
I mean, broadly, I get the sense that the re- regulatory environment is moving towards like, yes, we need to be doing more water reuse everywhere we can. But like, how is that actually playing out tactically, you know, at the state or even city and county level? I know San Francisco, for example, I think has a new mandate that will kick in at some point this decade around water reuse in commercial buildings, kind of like what we were talking about earlier, but I haven't read anything about industry or anything like that. Yeah, so I'll even just sort of speak to a couple of examples that are happening at the industry level, because I think that's where you're going to see it. You won't see necessarily broad blanket statements about all industries in this region suddenly, you know, 20% water reduction or your violation. But you will see things like, so in New York, in Massachusetts, especially in California, there have now been a lot of movement for organic waste diversion from landfills, right? We want to get our food waste out of landfills where it's not doing anything other than creating greenhouse gas emissions. And we want to convert that to compost or anaerobic digestion as a way to produce sustainable biogas, provide nutrients to soil, things that are actually valuable. So there's been, I think, particularly in California, they've set a target like 20 million tons a year of food waste diversion from landfills, which is part of what has been booming the anaerobic digestion growth in California. And you get similar changes to the renewable fuel standard and the low carbon fuel standard that are helping to boost the value of renewable natural gas produced from manure or food waste derived biogas. And so you see these sort of focused areas to encourage behavior change. And then the result of that is we're seeing something like 20 to 25% year over year growth rates in the volume of digestion capacity. Whereas in the last couple of decades, it's been growing at zero to single digit growth rates. So there's been this, because the regulations have changed, because the value has changed, because there's been this statewide initiative that has been implemented, suddenly we're getting dozens, hundreds of digestion facilities that are now coming online. Yeah, And so things like that can help encourage financiers, product developers to read the winds on what are the spaces where there's going to be a massive change in value creation opportunity, and then go put capital to work on building that. So for Zwitterco, which is one of our key markets is in treatment of digestate, Mm. one of the biggest cost drivers and the biggest limitations for bringing new digestion facilities online. What do you do with the liquid once you finish the methanogenesis process? Sure. And especially for food waste digestion, which is often located in urban settings where you're going to try and co-locate waste from lots of different sources. What do you do with that liquid? Well, there's no land to spread it on. You're putting that in a truck, you're driving it away. So if we can help create these new treatment schemes, it should be something that unlocks the growth of digestion. And there, you know, there's other examples, things again, like the meat and poultry industry, there's active work going on right now to change some of the standards for what wastewater treatment is required. And that's going to affect a lot of behavior change there as well. As an aside, that's always been, I mean, this is a topic for another podcast, but it's always been interesting to me, like why digestion kind of didn't really continue to take off in the US for like two decades. Like you spent a decent amount of time in Europe and there's just a massive footprint of digestion plants out there. But anywho, (laughs) we could probably go for 40 minutes on that in and of (laughs) itself. Yeah. I mean, something like 10,000 installed digesters in Europe right now, we've got a couple hundred in the US, but those numbers are growing fast and they're, they're larger facilities too. So it's a really compelling way to create value from the waste in all sorts of different ways. The production of fuel, production of nutrients, management of new soil additives or potential soil amendments. I love to see the circular economy showing up in any of those sort of trash to cash business models really do speak to the heart of 
where technology can be used to extract value even from some of the most unexpected places. I think that in and of itself is an answer to my next question, but zooming even further out, you know, even beyond water, like what are some other companies or just areas of innovation and climate tech, clean tech that you're particularly excited about and keeping an eye on? There's some others. Yeah, I mean, we we think about waste management is a really interesting one. There are things going on in the battery recycling space and the lithium extraction space. Actually, you know, one that is really, when I saw it, really brought out a... um, uh, some inspiration and sort of an emotional response. There is a massive need for water management in data centers. Hmm. And there's a company called Tomorrow Water that is working on co-locating municipal treatment plants with data centers. Nice. So that all of the right. water demand and cooling capacity that's required can be you know, both extracted from the process of managing the water, the wastewater, and can be much more efficient from a space and you know, actual like geographical footprints. They've got these beautiful plants that are like urban attractions. Even at the very beginning of our discussion, we were talking about making wastewater treatment more present in everyone's day to day so that it's not this thing that's sort of like off in the distance we don't think about. And one of the things that Tomorrow Water is doing is they are turning wastewater treatment plants into parks, into like public park centers. Wow. And also, you know, where possible, helping to take this other very necessary industry. Uh, you know, how we grow these very water-hungry, cooling-hungry data centers and connecting the dots with what these treatment plants could, could offer. It's just a, it's a combination of a bunch <laughs> of crazy ideas, but if you have a chance to go look at some of the images of the facilities they produce, they're these gorgeous, like, architected, designed, you know, public works features that, that just solve so many potential problems. So things like that get really exciting. Someone who gets a really creative, almost artistic vision of what's possible and connects the dots across a couple different spaces. Yeah, that's uh, sounds like I need to go check that out in person if possible. I'm definitely going to go take a look at that post-call. Um, well, Alex, it's been wonderful. I'm excited about what you all are working on, and, and I appreciate you taking the time. Uh, thanks for coming on. Absolutely. Nick, really appreciate the time. Cheers to everyone who's out there. Thanks for tuning in. So you don't miss the next episode on another cutting-edge climate tech, make sure to subscribe on Spotify, Apple, Google, or wherever it is that you get your podcasts. And to get even deeper, you can sign up for my newsletter on workweek.com. We'll see you soon.